Hello everyone and welcome to All About Fertility podcast. I'm Ella and today I'm excited to welcome Associate Professor Gavin Sachs, Clinical Director at IVF Australia. Now, Dr. Sachs is known for his research in the area of recurrent miscarriage and natural killer cells and developed the Bondi Protocol, which we'll discuss later. Welcome, Dr. Sachs, and thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Hi, Ella. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure and look forward to a chat. Excellent. So first of all, what I'd love to do is if you could just tell us a bit about yourself, where you're from, how long you've been in Australia for? Sure. So um, I I was actually born in South Africa Mm -hmm. and uh, my parents uh, left uh, when I was age 10 and we moved to England and uh, that's where I grew up uh, mainly. But I think the being born in South Africa kind of uh, left a thing in me and I always wanted the sort of more outdoor life. So um, the opportunity came up And um, as soon as I had finished my training, which I did basically mainly in England, Mm. uh, we decided to move as a family to Australia. And we came here in 2005. So we basically moved uh, for the lifestyle and obviously the opportunity to work in Sydney and uh, with IVF Australia. So, yeah, 15 years. Wow. And having looked back, I think that's... um, the dream of most English people when they move across um, it's for the lifestyle. <laughs> I know I did. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, it, it's not easy to make the transition and <clears throat> we still have uh, all our, you know, a lot of our friends and relatives are still in England. Mm. But I think the beauty of Australia is that uh, you, you kind of live this great life and uh, outdoors a lot and so much more space than anywhere, but anywhere else in the world, but you also uh, travel quite a bit and, so um, the nature of it means we often go back to conferences in Europe or America. So we yeah. travel and see a lot of the world, probably more than other other countries. Yeah. Oh, great. So I used to work for a private hospital in Melbourne, and I love speaking to the clinicians and hearing their backstory. And I always ask them why they chose their specialty. So did you always know that you wanted to become a doctor and why fertility? Right. So um, I reckon, um, I think my dad always wanted me to be a doctor. He was a dentist. Uh, I I was very, I am very close to my dad. He's still alive at 86. Oh, great. Um, but he's he was a dentist. And I used to um, go and visit his surgery uh, every Saturday and sit in with him mm-hmm. like when I was really quite young. And for me, work seemed to be, uh, you know, you were there and someone came to you and you did something to them and they went home again. Mm. And so the kind of concept of medicine seemed ingrained in what I expected of work, but I never really uh, imagined it. Um, I was really good at science and um, really interested in the way the world works. And uh, so I I did science and then Medicine just seemed, I, I don't know if it was pressure from him or not really pressure, but it just seemed a kind of natural thing. Yeah. But the funny thing was that uh, when I finally qualified, because in medical training in England at that time was quite traditional. So, you know, really a lot of uh, lectures and, you know, basic theory and stuff. Mm. You know, obstetrics and gynecology was uh, definitely something, I don't know why it happened, but uh, from every stage of training, um, 
as the obstetrics and gynecology side really interested me. So uh, during mm. very early preclinical, you know, theory work, uh, I was fascinated by the hormones and the development of, of humans and embryology and that kind of thing. Um, and then when I did early attachments, I just had a particular thing for this topic. And I really liked the, the, uh, the fundamental mm. excitement of it, uh, of giving birth and pregnancies. And um, so I yeah. it kind of was like at every step of the way, you know, I really liked the anatomy, female anatomy. It seemed so kind of such a particular interesting subject, you know, how the uterus works and that kind of thing. So every topic, I don't know, I had a natural affinity for it. So uh, once I uh, had qualified and stuff, it, it seemed uh, I just, I never really s- selected anything else. So you pioneered the Bondi Protocol. Can you explain it? So my, uh, I did a PhD in Oxford uh, and the PhD actually was in, in uh, reproductive immunology. And it started off in a disease called preeclampsia in uh, in late pregnancy, women get high mm. blood pressure. And I had a fantastic, really famous supervisor there uh, and was just brilliant working with him. He was just a real clever guy and brilliant educator. And uh, mm. I got this real passion in this subject, but the research that I did, which has uh, made a really big mark there, but it taught me yeah. that um, problems in late pregnancy begin in early pregnancy and I realized that implantation, the beginning of the, of the pregnancy and growing the placenta is really what the pregnancy is all about. So I got interested in, in that side and I realized that the immunology, the woman's immune system is, is basically fundamental to how that works. So um, this was in the 1990s and at that time, mm. um, uh, in parallel to my work, there was actually another guy in uh, Chicago in the U.S. called Alan Beer. And he uh, was uh, describing that women in IVF failure had high levels of these immune cells called natural killer cells. And uh, just by coincidence, I was doing my own research in those cells. And I was one of the first people in the world to be uh, you know, testing them and measuring different aspects of them. Uh, I was spending hours in the lab late at night doing these experiments. And um, the subject grew because, you know, he was quite a charismatic guy who proposed a concept of this immune problem, but he couldn't really prove it. And he probably excessively marketed the concept, and which meant a lot of doctors went against, against the concept. And there grew this really interesting, I found it a really interesting separation between some people like him and the patients who are desperate for something and mainstream medicine, which said, well, show us more evidence. Where's the randomized trials and this kind of thing. It was very difficult to do randomized trials once, um, once this had been proposed excessively because no one wanted to join a, a randomized trial. Mm-hmm. So I found this topic very interesting and women are really caught between these two sides. There are doctors who are really for it and really against it. So I decided I had a knowledge about immunology and I wanted to go in the middle. And the only way to go in the middle is to do a test and learn about mm-hmm. it. You know, you can't just you can't just decide on on a whim or, or a yeah. belief. So 
So when I came to Sydney, I created this test. It's called natural killer cell, uh, natural killer cell test. And it's actually a blood test. And we spent a long time uh, creating uh, the reference ranges and the, a test that would discriminate some people who had high levels or low levels. And uh, once we had identified people who had this, uh, the treatment, I wanted the treatment to be relatively cheap and easy and accessible, you know, not some really expensive thing because this was unproven. It is really still unproven. And it has to be something that you can readily try because, you know, you, you're desperate and you have to try something. Um, and so the treatment evolved with those thoughts and, and the treatment is simply a, a tablet called prednisolone, which is a steroid tablet commonly used in many, many aspects of medicine, like asthma and arthritis and skin mm. problems, you know, many things. And uh, Clexane is a, a kind of blood thinning injection, which is commonly used for blood thinning things, but we use it for its immune effect. So really simple. These are very cheap drugs, really, which we added in to people who seem to have a, a high test result. And I mm. guess uh, I became known as the Bono Protocol because I worked in Bono Junction and the name stuck. For, for, at, at the time, there was, a, there was something else at the time before that called the Colorado Protocol. I don't know if you or your listeners have heard of that. Um, and that was invented in Colorado, mm-hmm. um, which was uh, a kind of, the Colorado Protocol is really just uh, throw everything at the cycle uh, just at implantation time, and we're not really sure, okay? Whereas this is much more focused on people who've had a test that shows something, and then the treatment starts earlier, and is quite specific on the immune system. It's not just mm-hmm. a throw everything at someone thing. Um, so, you know, it's been difficult to prove it, but over the last few years, yeah. uh, there have been other trials in other countries which have been published to show uh, benefit when it's given in women with an immune problem. So uh, I think I'm really interested in the idea of targeting it for that. You know, we don't just give it to everyone. Uh, someone, you know, there's got to uh, there's got to be mm-hmm. some kind of um, reason, whether it's the, the test um, and some kind of clinical history. So normally, I think it is probably better for people who've failed before. Um, given the knowledge we have so far. So you wouldn't go straight into it? So, you know, that's a tough one. I, and I'm, I, I now see a lot of patients who see me saying, well, I've heard of this and, and you know, if the test, I'm going to do the test before I do IVF, which I think is fair enough. Um, but if the test is positive, uh, we're in a little bit of a dilemma. It's not sh- certain what's best to do on current evidence. No one knows. Um, so, you know, ultimately, um, it's, that's a bit uncertain. I don't think it's unreasonable if someone's, uh, you know, it's a lot of money sometimes to go through IVF. Mm. And um, I don't think it's wrong to do it um, with caution, you know, with some kind of explanation like this. Um, uh, but, yeah, I, I think it's a matter of time before it will be proven. I mean, that's mm. my feeling about it. So when a patient sees you after repeated IVF failures, what do you do to start rebuilding their confidence and what sort of investigations do you do in order to get the best results for your patients? Yeah, I I think from the very beginning of my practice, I was interested in 
uh, repeated failure because, you know, that I, I found, find that the real challenge. I mean, I think that IVF in basic terms is fairly standard and, uh, you know, we know what, what, how it works kind of thing. And, uh, but clearly the real challenge is to really deal with people who fail a lot and why they fail. And um, so that's really interesting. And I, I, from the very beginning of my uh, career, I was interested in that really tough subject. And I guess my approach is, um, you know, they need, um, you know, we, you need to explore their story. Um, and I think that's, first of all, slightly cathartic just to, you know, get it all out. But usually uh, there is something that's interesting in, in their story. I, I don't think any person can be summarized in a, well, I've failed three times. Like there's always more to it. Um, you might say, you know, exa- you know, how many eggs? And isn't that interesting that so many eggs, but not so many fertilized or uh, how many embryos, what the quality, you know, you explore deeper and deeper. Um, you ask questions like, um, how are the transfers? Well, I, I, I was in pain or the doctor found it difficult. Um, uh, you know, they, we, we had all these embryos tested and they're all normal. You know, each thing actually means quite a lot. Um, I find even my colleagues, you know, even out at the meetings we have, we tend to summarize patients, you know, very kind of blandly, like you can say, well, three failures and, and they've done all the tests. People say this a lot, um, but that's not really thinking. I actually think the first step is to go through the story and try to glean every bit of uh, useful information. The useful information is, is, you know, so obvious sometimes. Uh, sometimes it really is obvious that the transfer has been the problem or um, that the embryos are really good and we can't explain why they aren't implanting, so it's an implantation problem or fertilization is a problem. And that requires a bit more probing uh, than just kind of summarizing. So uh, getting the full story is really good. Um, I then, uh, you know, you really have to start building, I think of kind of building blocks, like uh, we have to think what, what ultimately makes baby. So you need eggs. So, you know, what do we know about where these eggs are coming from? Uh, what, you know, how old is the person and how many are there and what, are, what, are the, what have they been like? And what have the cycles been like so far? What can we change and improve potentially there? And there usually is something there. Uh, then you go to the sperm in the same way. Uh, not just great the sperm, you know, is it actually good quality? Should we be selecting sperm in a different way, uh, collecting even in a different way? Then you go to the transfer, as I said, and the, then the, uh, the implantation uh, factors. So I kind of go through each step, step like that, the male thing, the egg thing, the uterus thing. And each of these things... Uh, sometimes needs a bit more investigation. So it's kind of breaking it apart, teasing apart initially, and then we bring it all together to make a plan. That's how I see it. And I think the confidence that people gain is in that process of, you know, a little bit of exploring. You need to investigate. You need to, I think the people who do this um, have to have passion. You know, um, a patient has to see that you're really excited by this, you know, whatever information you think is interesting. 
and um, and I, I think not everyone's like that. You know, I I love the little details that I think might show me the way. Um, I really believe that uh, everyone has a unique problem and a, a kind of very special their own thing, and you have to kind of find the thing that will that will make the difference. And it's not always easy. It's not even always something that you can put a finger on and say that's what it was. It's sometimes a whole combination of things. So you might address various things in your different ways and be lucky with the end result. And everyone will think it was because of this or because of that. And we're not sure exactly why, but it's just thinking of every little detail. Yeah, that sounds really in depth. <laughs> the level of investigation that you're doing um, is like you're looking at each individual patient instead of just looking at the stats. I, I guess that's what you do anyway. Well, I have to say it is it is reasonably intense because I mean I I don't know people have been through IVF even once it's hard enough but imagine doing it multiple times. You know I I find it quite a a struggle to just think. I never needed IVF in my personal life but you know uh, i just can't imagine uh you know having to go into something where the doctor says you've got a 30 percent chance you know that's that's not enough you know so like i really feel very passionate that we need to make this success rate higher and you know it's really important well, there's a lot of patients that seek alternative therapies um, while, while they're going forward for IVF, such as acupuncture, Chinese herbs. Um, however, some don't really feel comfortable discussing it with their fertility specialists. Would you say it's important for patients to discuss treatments that they're having alongside IVF? So, yeah, well, you know, in Sydney, um, gosh, I mean, most patients see alternative practitioners it's an amazingly common thing now um and uh, i have a lot of relationships a lot of uh, good relationships with naturopaths and chinese medicine uh, practitioners um some of them are really 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 supportive really kind of strong in terms of their approach and uh keen to uh work kind of with us you know i think um, there's no other way. Of course, we want to be involved in, in my view, you know, because um, I, I mean, I look on a, an IVF patient, well, any fertility patient, maybe any patient, as a, a professional tennis player on court. And the, every player has, you know, their team in the box. Uh, and their team is like, you know, their girlfriend and their mother and their coach and their brother and stuff like that. And I think most of our patients now have their box with their team. And patients actually pick their team. You know, they pick their specialist, but they also have their naturopaths and their um, Chinese medicine people and other supporters in whatever way. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that because the support is a really important part of it all. Uh, We're all contributing to a kind of network around this patient. And uh, so, you know, really important for us to be aware as much as possible. It's quite hard to, to learn about what they're doing. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I ask about herbs, but, you know, it's very hard for me to understand what they all are. It's a whole specialty in itself. So I kind of have to trust them. Um, so when they bring someone along, no problem. And we want to be involved in, in terms of all understanding what's going on. Absolutely. 
Um, if people ask me, and I can recommend people, um, I'm also asked more direct questions like, do I think it's beneficial? Yeah. And, you know, the honest truth I do have to answer is, well, there's no evidence really to say that that increases your success rate. And we have actually done our own trial of that. I think the biggest acupuncture trial was done at, uh, in, a, with a, in Australia involving Ivy Australia, and it actually failed to show benefit. It doesn't mean that there isn't benefit in some people, and there have been trials that have shown benefit. Um, and, but I'm really saying that the support it offers is bigger than that. So I think yeah. people benefit in, in, in ways that are beyond just the, the kind of pregnancy test at the end. Um, and the pregnancy test at the end, you know, could be a fact for some people. So the bottom line is, um, you know, people need support. These practitioners can be really good for a lot of people. Um, and it's, it's certainly better to know. Um, you know, occasionally there are drug interactions and I think patients should should be aware of their those those therapies as much as they are with ours in terms of success. So, for example, I often say, for example, in the repeated failure patients, I might say, well, or mm-hmm. even in a new patient, you might say, well, oh, great, you've been seeing the, um, the the Chinese medicine person for a year or two, and I go, well, you know, have have what have they done so far? Like, we haven't actually got a result. I mean, it's easy for them to look at an IVF cycle and say that hasn't worked. And I've had three cycles that haven't worked. But they also have to judge alternative medicine in the same way, Mm. you know. So we have to be critical of everything, of ourselves as well as them. Um, And I sort of just, I think it's important for patients to be aware of that side. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Um, So what advice would you give to someone who's looking into IVF the first time? You know, a lot of people are really scared of IVF or, or they're determined to avoid it, shall we say. And yeah. I think um, that's Because not... that's down to everyone's perception, right? And the way how they perceive IVF. Yes, yeah. It's got a thing. And it's also... And, but, I, you know, I think you've got to... Be, people have to be a bit careful about that because um, that can that can, you know keep them away from it for too long. Mm. And I think especially in today's world where many women, in fact, the majority trying to have babies now are in their thirties, which is not young anymore, you know? Um, So the longer you wait, the, the, for a woman, the lower her egg count gets and the worse quality her eggs get and her chances at IVF go down. So there's a bit of a tricky thing there. I would say, um, a relatively early visit to a specialist is good, not necessarily to do IVF at all, mm-hmm. um, you know, but basically just to kind of create a strategy and make sure things aren't missed. And um, it also gives them a chance to kind of get to know, you know, do they like that person or whatever? Because I think, um, you know, liking being on the same page as your specialist is important. Yeah. So, um, so one of the things is, I'd go a bit earlier than later. Like I wouldn't wait until the end of the line or whatever the feeling is and just get referred into IVF. Um, I think uh, you can be better than that. So I, I would, if if you have infertility and it seems to be that way or your GP reckons that's the way, um, an earlier than later visit to a specialist. 
and you're really just looking for someone you get on with who seems to um, talk in the way that, you know, ticks the boxes for Mm. you kind of thing. Like, and I I think it's really quite a personal thing. Remember that all IVF specialists, or rather most of them, I should say, are, you know, we're pretty, like, highly qualified. So we we, uh, cover all aspects of infertility. So I'm not sure it's so necessary to say, well, I have endometriosis, I need someone who's famous in endometriosis, Mm -hmm. or I have, you know, a sperm problem, I need someone who's famous in that, or I think I have an immune problem, I need to see uh, Dr. Sachs or whatever. Like we all, um, we all uh, cover all the things. It's really a matter of finding the right person for you. And it's not about that your problem. It's about personality. Mm, totally so, agree. Um, so I think a recommendation in terms of, I don't know, people you know who say someone or GP recommendations, profiles of doctors, but not in terms of their interest, but about you have to make a, a connection with that doctor, I'd say. Yeah. Um, so I'd say that's kind of more important than does this doctor, you know, I think self-diagnosis is the problem. That's kind of what I'm getting at there. You know, too many people um, are, are, we all do this, right? We all now are Go to Google. smart on the internet <laughs> and do the Google. And I have this problem. I have so many patients who come to me with this. And, you know, I think they're never kind of right because they, how can you be? How can you have the perspective that you need? Mm. Um, so I think it's more important to find a doctor who seems to be, you know, have a, an approach that you like rather than seems to fix the problem that I have. Yeah. Uh, would be. And I think, um, uh, you know, uh, re- relatively big clinics are obviously good because their labs are, are generally really good and there's a lot of support around them. So, um, you know, um, quite well-known clinics are good for that reason, I'd say. Yeah. You know, I have to agree with you, like um, the way how we met, because you're my facility specialist also. Um, We went, my husband and I went to a information evening for IVF Australia and you just so happened to be the specialist talking that day. Right. And I remember meeting you, you had a glass of wine in your hand and some maybe cheese and biscuits. (laughs) But you were really relaxed, direct and honest. And I think that's the sort of approach that my husband and I really um, gravitated to because I remember us saying, you know what, he seems like our friends, a couple of our friends. So, you know, (laughs) let's go ahead with that. So I was actually treating it as, um, look, I I needed my fertility specialist to, to be my best friend because I had to trust them. Yeah, yeah. So that's the approach that I had. And uh, Ella, that's beautiful. I think that is the best approach because, you know, it's a, it's obviously a very personal subject and very emotional. You know, to be honest, um, I cry with someone most days of my life. Mm. Um, and the crying is important, you know. I mean, I, I mean, no one, a lot of people don't like crying, but it's, you know, mm. there is a, an emotional connection that's very important. And, uh and I think uh, the decisions that we make um, have to be joint decisions. Uh, there's no point in me yeah. saying you need this. You know, um, uh, you need IVF when you're, you're, you don't want to do IVF. You can't afford it. You, you, mm. can't, um, you can't do it. Um, or, uh, you know, you, you, you didn't want to do it so early. Like I still have to 
do what um, suits them. And that's quite a personal mm-hmm. thing, you know. Uh, so my job really is to connect with a person and uh, make the plan that suits them. And, and even in IVF, another thing is that IVF, we're using that term in quite a general sense. I think every person going into IVF has quite a unique sort of strategy. You know, you can say IVF is to get pregnant. Well, there's a lot more to it in terms of what you're really trying to get out of the cycle. Are you trying to do a fresh embryo transfer? Are you trying to freeze, you know, lots of embryos? Are you planning to give immune therapy? Um, Are you planning to test embryos? Uh, There are a lot of factors that go into what the real plan of the IVF is. And that's quite a personal decision between you and the patient. So a connection is something you should seek. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Um, And after all these years in in the fertility industry, what motivates you? What excites you about, you know, going into work every day? Well, uh, you know, in the corona world, going into work every day is exciting. Uh, (laughs) well you must be faced with challenges so many different Um, challenges (laughs) no getting no i'm saying getting out of the 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 house and going somewhere else oh uh, my my wife is uh she she works for uh, medsans on frontier msf uh as a in a as a manager there um and they all work at home she's very frustrated at the moment and jealous of my going into the office anyway what excites me about the real work look um i just love the challenge of you know i see every patient as a real uh, almost like a phd you know i consider their case like a phd uh and like my original phd and i i find it Mm -hmm. really really just so fascinating to try and uh get to the bottom of it and make it work and obviously um the nature of IVF means so many don't work and it is really draining, but you know, the, the emotion of that is really just means a lot to me. I'm quite a, I am quite a personal person and I really, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, you know, at the end of the day, when people make a connection, uh, that's what matters to me. I mean, I can, I, 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 I can be in tears myself if someone, uh, just uh, can say, you know, sorry, it didn't work, but, you know, they they really appreciated this or that. But then there's also the successes, obviously, you know, um, to feel that you've really come through, you know, someone who's had five years of trying this and that, and, you know, mm. just to be part of that process. And you can see the change in their lives is extraordinary. So, um, so I see people who... Uh, you know, their, their faces, they're very stressed. You can tell a lot of these sort of patients naturally. And then the most amazing thing of the work is uh, when whatever I've done has worked, um, they are transformed, almost unrecognizable. (laughs) I see their faces. Um, In fact, I saw someone today on zoom, in fact, and um, you know, it was like, just a different, almost a different life. You know, it's incredible to see yeah. how, um, you know, just being involved, whether it was my hands or whatever I did, um, 
Mm. So, you know, how a life can be transformed from utter misery and despair. And I mean, it's so awful seeing people who failed, who can't do what they really just want to do most of all. Yeah. And then it's yeah. they succeed. And it's like, it's like you've actually almost given them birth, never mind their own children, their new child. Yeah. It's like they are reborn again, you know. So uh, very satisfying to see that. Yeah, I bet. So what do you do when a patient has hit rock bottom and can't seem to pull themselves out of the state of disappointment and pain? How do you manage that going into the next cycle? Yeah. Or do you refer them to so, see a coach or a therapist? You know, um, so this is major work and can take really a while, you know, but um, I think, as I said uh, in the beginning, um, they have to realize that I'm looking at it uh, uh, with fresh eyes. Uh, it's very common for them to say, well, what, what, what are you doing? Like, what's so, you know, uh, we're just going to do the same again. Mm. And, you know, it, obviously every IVF cycle is similar, you know, it's not like, and it's very easy for someone to say, well, it looks the same. And we tried that. We did mm. that drug before. Mm. Um, and it takes a lot of effort to try and, uh, show that basically what's different is an approach, uh, an approach of considering um, different aspects and trying, I actually spend quite a long time explaining why I'm doing this drug and that, that thing and why we should do that. Um, so that they feel that there's something, there's an active process going on. It's not an automatic, you know, mm. and uh, I think people really appreciate the idea that you're thinking and you know, um, I don't, I actually often, uh, you know, you have to be honest and you say, well, this is really hard. And that kind of thing is very, being honest is, is very important. I think the patients who get the most frustrated are when doctors don't really explain anything and just kind of sign them up for cycles. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very easy to do that. Believe me, if you're, if you're pushed for time and you just kind of, I don't know, do a cycle, fine, do this. And uh, you can very easily, as a patient, go into this, um, well, you know, I just did this, the same thing again and again. And I think, um, I think being, um, being aware that you're really thinking about what you're doing and, uh, you know, you're not just pulling things out of the air, right? You, yeah. You're like, because I think that's also bad where doctors might just say, well, I don't know, try this this time. Um, I think... Uh, so the thinking about the problem and and trying to I really try to involve the patients in it as much as possible because I you know another thing I, I really don't be, don't believe it's good for patients uh, to be be very passive and uh, you know no one likes being passive really like people want to be empowered and engaged really mm. I'm not saying they need to understand all this stuff uh, that I'm trying to explain mm. but I think. They should, um, you know, be kind of aware that the decision is theirs to make, you know, that my job is to guide and I have to make it simple enough to, for them to understand and to do it. And they have to see my passion, you know, that mm. I think this is really worth it uh, for whatever these reasons. So I think it is a lot of work. Now that sounds like counseling to me and it is counseling. Mm. And uh, most of my work is that, to be honest. Um, counselors 
and other alternative practitioners I regard as other um, support people along that process. I, I don't think everyone needs them, you know. Mm. Uh, like I don't, I, I don't think I don't insist on it, for example. Um, but we have fantastic counselors. And in fact, in the Corona world, uh, one of my counselors' journey has been helping me. You know, it's depressing enough, yeah. Uh, and it, it is amazing. They can be really helpful with their little tips, sometimes very subtle on, uh, you know, just to help you through whatever. Yeah. So counselors can be fantastic for a lot of people. Um, so, um, but everyone needs support in different ways. You know, sometimes a patient's best support will come from my nurse, you know, mm. a fantastic nurse, Steph or whatever. And they just want to be see with her all the time and get all the results from her. And that can usually happen. Yeah. Um, they strike up their own relationship and, you know, that can be helpful. So where the support comes from is varied and it's why we work in a team because everyone will find something somewhere. Excellent. Um, so <laughs> what would you say are the key fundamentals to prepare yourself for IVF? The key fundamentals to prepare yourself. Again, I, I'm asked this a, a lot by patients. It's quite funny because... But isn't it a 50-50% um, partnership? It's 50% you and 50% the other person. So they yeah. actually have to work alongside you, right? Well, it's interesting because, you know, IVF, I mean, you pay a lot of money often and it's a, clearly a massive thing. Uh, yeah. So, like... I mean, on the one hand, it's like, well, that's a pretty big thing in itself. It's, it's like just doing it is what you need to do. You know, it's a designed, whatever the plan is, to give you your best chance you'll ever have or something. Mm. Um, so it's quite, you know, interesting that people always ask this question, uh, what else can I do? Yeah. And yeah. Um, the reality is, to be honest, I don't think very much for most people. So... When people ask that question, they're thinking of what they're really doing, in my view, is trying to say they want to be empowered. They want to sort of take charge of their own plan because IVF can make them feel very passive. You know, they just get given injections and get told what to do and lie on the operating theater and, you know, that that's passive. But they want to be engaged, and that's great. Um, but a lot of people are already quite healthy. They're already basically eating a good diet. They aren't overweight. They don't smoke. Yeah. And I think if you are relatively normal weight, good diet, don't smoke, that is all you can do. So most people are already that. Now, I don't believe in this idea that you shouldn't drink alcohol. Um, alcohol actually has no harm at all in moderation. Mm. And many people need it, you know, um, <laughs> like... We need something to live and and be relaxed, you know, as many of us. I mean, I have yeah. a glass of wine now, and I can't <laughs> imagine going through IVF without one if I had to. Yeah. Um, and then there's um, coffee. You know, what a ridiculous thing that I do not agree with naturopaths that coffee's bad. I think there's no evidence for that in moderation. Like, really? Are we saying you can't have a cup of coffee a day? Like, how can anyone mm. live in a city these days without coffee? So... I don't think that's bad to be living a normal, moderate life. Yeah. Um, sex is another thing which uh, is really fascinating. You know, in the past when IVF was uh, started, um, it was very, you know, amazing thing. And people, uh, the success rates were very low in the early days. Yeah. And they just didn't want anything to mess it up in any way. 
So this kind of culture grew that somehow you had to avoid sex during IVF. They didn't want uh, any kind of somehow uh, too much uh, going on in the pelvis and uh, they wanted the man to save up his sperm and this kind of thing. Well, actually, we now know the opposite. In fact, the sperm should be fresher, so more small, fresher sperm, which means more ejaculating during the cycle is better. And we also know, which is fascinating for me, that um, sex at the time of the transfer is actually beneficial. Um, And, you know, you tell people this, and it's a fantastic liberation because, you know, they're just a couple often if there are a couple trying to have a baby together and Mm. sex is fundamentally what that's always been about. Why should we ban that? You know? So I, I, I kind of, I believe in freeing up things a bit from where many people have become, they've become so inhibited often by the time they get to IVF, um, they should be a much, in a much looser, happier state. Um, so that's how I, I talk. The preparation should be on those lines. Uh, <laughs> drink, not, in terms of, not, not in terms of what you can't do, but yeah. in terms of doing what you want to do. Well, fantastic. Well, that sounds empowering anyway. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. So it's interesting that you mentioned um, the early days because Australia sees 40 years of IVF in June. Right, yes. And obviously correct. the technology has evolved and new processes and techniques have been developed. So where do you see the future of IVF? Wow, what a fantastic question for me, especially because um, I, uh, when I was uh, in England in the early late 1980s, um, I went to Cambridge University and I went to a college to do a, an entry uh, kind of exam. I was 17 years old. Oh, wow. Um, you know, I knew nothing about anything. Yeah. <laughs> and the essay question, just, just, just a blinded question, I didn't know what was coming, was what is the future of in vitro fertilization? Oh. And at that time, there were a few test tube babies. And I'd seen a few headlines in newspapers. It was, I had to make up this whole story. I knew nothing at all. Mm. Anyway, funnily enough, that has stuck with me. And clearly, IVF just has mushroomed since then to become the main way of treating infertility for almost every every problem. Mm. So it's certainly become in 40 years uh, an amazing achievement. You know, there have been 8 million babies born. Wow. Uh, 4% of Australian babies are now IVF produced, you know, a little country in itself. Mm. Um, IVF babies are now grown, grown up and having children themselves. So yeah. it's a whole generation that's now reproducing. So it is an incredible thing that seems to be basically good mm. for most people and everyone, really. Um, I think it's fascinating because uh, I, I think um, it probably is going to become more and more prevalent. People are going to do it more and more because I actually see society changing and people are becoming much more um, you know, uh, prescriptive about when they want to have children and how and with who. And I think IVF is a way of empowering them to sort of, to do it when they want to. Um, And often delaying till quite late on in life relatively for women. There's also increasingly, and I think we're going to come across this more, is preconception genetic screening. Uh, A lot of people will now 
uh, screen themselves for genes that they may have mm. and they'll meet some partner and say, well, does that partner have the same gene? And then IVF might be a way of screening them out. I mean, this is going to be a really big thing in the next few years. And I think overall IVF percentages, the, the proportion of people doing it to have baby will increase. Um, I would say quite significantly. This may sound horrific for a lot of people, but you know, I don't think, for example, sex and reproduction are the same. You know, you can you can do it that way, but IVF is an amazing way to have children for many people and will become probably, you know, a standard way for many people. So I, I, uh, I don't know if that's good or bad. You may even find it horrific, Ella, to think about that, having gone through it. But I think the concept of what it is will become the main way. You know, it may not always involve injections, for example. You know, we may create drugs that are taken by tablets, you know, things like that will make it easier without a doubt. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's just an incredible achievement. The people who did it won the Nobel Prize for it. Uh, And Australia was the, the, well, it was actually the third country in the world to have produced an IVF baby. So it's been at the leading edge all along. And uh, and I think that um, it's it's clearly demonstrated that it's a very successful and powerful treatment, and I imagine it will become almost the main way of having children for most people one day. Wow! How about that? That that is huge. (laughs) (laughs) And well, clearly that will happen, Ella, when success rates, which I believe they will, get to over fifty percent for most people. And once that's the case, well, you know, that's, you know, you could choose uh, when and how and uh, with who and, and what kind of genetic screening mm. is going to be a big thing. Uh, that is a whole discussion. We talk for an hour easily about the genetics, yeah. which is going to be a big factor increasingly. Um, and, um, but I think, you know, that is probably where the world is going uh, for for the, you know, for the next generation. Well, I'm actually quite speechless. It's um, exciting as well as a really scary <laughs> all at the same time. I mean, yes. you know, just reading some papers, they do say that um, the increase of couples using IVF in the next 10 years will increase um, from, you know, yes. one in six to it will be higher. Um, well, you know, I, I would compare it um, to cesarean section, Okay. Um, in the 1970s, the cesarean section rate was like 5% and went to about 15%. And, and the WHO said, well, that's probably where it should be um, based on you know who really needs a cesarean section uh, birth. Um, well, you know, in Australia, it's now over 30%. And in private practice, it's over 50%. Mm. Uh, in some countries like Brazil, for example, it's 70%. Oh, wow. So I think the concept of intervening in reproduction is, is not that unappealing to a lot of people. It seems quite a powerful thing. And I think I, I would predict IVF has a similar trajectory. Uh, I don't know if I'll be around to see that, but I think it mm. will mm. head in that direction. Gosh. Well, and on that note, <laughs> that's, that's a lot to digest. Yeah. <laughs> on that note, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me.
it's been informative and as someone who's going through IVF, um, it's been encouraging to hear what you're doing to achieve the best results for your patients. Um, I really do value your expertise, your guidance and the love that you show your patients. Thank you. Thank you, Ella. So I, 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 can I equally say what you're doing is amazing because to bring this kind of technology so that we can have a discussion like this, which I couldn't do, to be honest. You know, this is way beyond me to organize such a thing. Um, and I think that's incredible. And, and the passion that you've shown to, to bring this uh, tough journey that, you know, you've had, but you're sharing and um, basically using it in a very powerful way to enlighten people is amazing. So, uh, you. I, you know, it's a team, you know, we're in the box together, yeah. which is fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Okay, so enjoy the rest of your week and thank you so much for talking to me. Okay, thank you, Ella. Thank you so much. Cheers, thanks. Bye.